may be seated. I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings 8, and we're going to be taking a look together at verses 12 through 26 today, 12 through 26. I know in your folder it's got a longer section, I decided to cut it down. I actually, it's interesting, as I, as I prepare, I will sometimes look at the way some, some guys have divided up the, uh, uh, their readings, and uh, I did notice one man who uh, actually managed to preach on the entire chapter in one go, and um, I'm not sure if you were aware of this, but it's 66 verses. Uh, he did this in 30 minutes. I timed it. It takes at least 20 minutes to read the chapter, uh, roughly. So um, uh, I, I didn't bother listening to the sermon, but uh, it, um, it would have been mostly his uh, just, just quick uh, going over that. I'm not going to do that to you. I, I do want to bring it into a manageable size. So I'm going to be looking at 12 through 26. As you know, God has established Solomon on the throne of his father, David. He has given him peace all around. He gave him this alliance with Hiram, king of Tyre, that allowed him to get access to lumber and men who were the Gebelites, who were very, very good at cutting stone. And this opened the way for him to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, and he did that. And now we're going to see what happens when the dedication begins to move forward. We've already seen the ark going up to the temple, and now we will read some of what happened when Solomon himself dedicated this house to the Lord. But before we do that, let's go speak to the Lord himself, and let's ask for his help and understanding. Please join me. Sovereign Lord, no man can adequately open up and explain your word unless he knows the power of it himself. I pray, therefore, O Lord, that you would put in my heart that, that true fear, that desire, O Lord, also to make your name known. May it burn in my bones like it burned in the bones of Jeremiah. May it be, Lord, that I, I want to tell people about your glory, your enduring love, your mercy, your covenant faithfulness, and most of all, about the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, who was prefigured in the things of the temple. I do pray now, Lord, that you would be with us. Open our eyes, Lord. Help us to see. Help us to hear. We know, Lord, that whenever it comes time for worship, it's spiritual warfare. The devil is determined to make sure that the seed just falls on the path and is eaten up by the birds really quickly, that it doesn't find any sort of root or lodging in the soil. But we pray, Lord, that you would instead make our hearts into good soil. And may the seed of the word produce the kind of harvest that's needed. May we hear your word, and may we understand it. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. First Kings chapter 8, I'll start reading with verse 12. I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. And Solomon spoke. The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who spoke with his mouth to my father David, and with his hand has fulfilled it, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the temple, but your son, who will come from your body, he shall build the temple for my name. So the Lord has fulfilled his word, which he spoke. 
and I have filled the position of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And there I have made a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants, who walk before you with all their hearts. You have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying you shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel. Only if your sons take heed to their way that they walk before me as you have walked before me. And now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true which you have spoken to your servant, David, my father. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So we go through the, uh, the events of that day and we try to get a better idea of what was going on in the dedication of the temple. I want you to have an, a question in your mind. And it's simply this, what makes a church truly a church? And when I say that, I mean, what makes a place of worship, truly a place where God is worshipped? What makes it a place where you don't simply have a building with people in it? What is it that makes it special? What is it that makes it a time where people are blessed, where souls are refreshed, where true worship is offered up? That's a question that's really at the center of uh, this, this whole dialogue or monologue rather uh, Solomon is speaking to God and to the people about the temple now it had taken Solomon seven years and immense amounts of treasure and its alliance with Hiram king of Tyre in order to build the temple the house for the name of the Lord in Jerusalem but he had done it and now came the day of de- uh, dedication you remember last week we discussed how they had brought the ark of the covenant containing the two tablets of the Ten Commandments for the lower part of King David's city in Jerusalem up to the temple and how they had gone marching and had sacrificed multitudes of sheep and oxen on the way. Literally, it would have been a path of blood going to the temple. Then they had the place uh, where the ark was to be put. It was to be put underneath these cherubim in the Holy of Holies, the innermost part of the temple. The priests had done that. They had carried it inside. And it was at that point that something had happened that had set this building apart from every other building on earth that made it particularly special in a way that no other building was special. And it was when the glory of the Lord, that cloud of thick darkness, filled the building so thick that it drove the priests actually out. They could no longer minister there. Now, the temple itself, attention had been taken to make sure that physically it was a beautiful building. Architecturally, it was, it was pleasing to the eye. And certainly the things inside of it, going into the Holy of Holies, which was overlaid entirely with gold, would have been awesome, even though most people wouldn't see it, only the priests, and particularly the high priest on Yom Kippur, only he would see into the Holy of Holies. But we need to remember that 
the ancient Near East was filled with wonderful temples. Uh, in, in some cases, temples that were larger, taller, grander in many respects. Egypt at this point, for instance, was filled with giant temple complexes. To this day, we can go and, and see the ruins and still be overawed at the majesty, the size, these gargantuan statues, these, these pillars covered in hieroglyphics and so on. And just imagine what they would have looked like when they were still overlaid with marble, for instance, and shining in the sun. Mesopotamia was filled with huge ziggurats. They were the stepped temples. If you've ever been to Mexico, for instance, and uh, gone to see things like the, the Temple of the Moon, uh, you, will, you will have seen these stepped pyramids, which are very much like the pyramids that were found in Mesopotamia. They were a series of steps that were supposed to lead the worshiper and the priests up to heaven, and there was the temple uh, at the very top. There was one, for instance, Etamanet. Oh, I'm not going to get it. I, I don't speak ancient Babylonian. I'm sorry. Etamananki in Babylon, uh, which had seven steps. The first step of the temple itself was twice as high as the temple. The first step of that ziggurat, rather, was twice as high as the temple. And if ancient sources are to be believed, the shrine at the top where the worship was supposed to take place was 300 feet in the air. Now, what made this temple special, what set it apart, which made it more important than all of those ziggurats and, and all of those temple complexes was not the stone, it was not the cedar, it was not the gold overlay in the holy of holies. What was it that made this temple so very important? And the answer is, it was the presence of the Lord with his people. That was what made it holy. I made it Kadosh, which set it apart from all of the other people. When Moses turned aside from tending his sheep, for instance, on Mount Horeb, this was long before this day, when he had turned aside to see a bush that appeared to be burning that was not consumed, God spoke to him from the midst of the fire, saying, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. That's Exodus 3.5. Now, undoubtedly, Moses had been on Mount Horeb before. He had been leading his sheep around there. Yet, he had never taken his sandals off when he was on the mountain previously. Because, you see, what made the mountain holy on that particular day was the fact that the Lord was there. And that he had met with him. Otherwise, this mountain was just, it was so much dirt and rock and vegetation. may have been interesting to look at as landscape, but it wasn't particularly holy in and of itself. It's funny, you know, a lot of people um, will call this room in the church, what are, what's one of the most common names given for it? Sanctuary. It's called a sanctuary. And that comes to us, it's got the Latin root sanctus, meaning holy, the holy room. But let's face it, it's just wood and drywall and paint and carpet and chairs by itself. It's not particularly holy. It's not holy in and of itself, but it becomes holy when God is present with his people in the midst of it. When we assemble as the people of God and we call upon God to be in our midst. Have you ever noticed that all of our worship services start with an invocation? We confess that it's not worship unless God is here. But when he meets with his people, it becomes holy ground. Brothers and sisters, saints, that is, the holy ones, literally the Haggioi in the New Testament, 
You are a holy people set apart to God. And when you gather and enter into his presence, that is holy ground. Have you ever thought about it that way? Should affect the way that we think about worship, shouldn't it? That, that this is holy ground that we're standing upon. There should be a, a reverence and awe as we come into his presence. Well, Moses met with a holy God on holy ground on Mount Horeb. And then you remember later on he had led Israel at God's command out of Egypt. And he had once again met with God on this mountain. And the presence of God had been signified by a thick cloud, darkness, with lightning and thunderings and so on. Moses entered into that cloud. They thought he was dead. No, surely nobody could survive in the midst of that. And then, of course, he had returned to them after 40 days. And then after 40 years, he had led a new generation of Israelites to the very edge of the promised land. And in the plains of Moab, he had reminded the people of what had happened at Mount Sinai, how the Lord had met with him in clouds and thick darkness. Now Solomon sees, you remember, he starts out pointing towards the temple, standing, and he sees the glory cloud filling the temple. He sees these, probably some of them terrified priests coming out of the building, and he is pleased. He is overjoyed. Why? Because of the significance of it. He tells them, the Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. He turns around and tells the people, the Lord is present with us. The Lord is here in this place. We we could ask, why a dark cloud? Why not a light cloud? Well, Dale Ralph Davis writes that the cloud both is Yahweh's glory and covers Yahweh's glory. It both reveals and conceals. See, the the full glory of God revealed to the people of God, a sinful people, would have been more than they could bear. And it would have been their undoing, literally. They would have felt themselves coming apart. So this dark cloud reveals the presence of the Lord in the midst of his people without destroying his worshipers at the same time. It is the mercy of the Lord and also a sign of the presence of the Lord. So Solomon sees the cloud, and then he turns around, and he prays before the people with his hands raised. Later on, we are going to to learn that at some point he knelt. He was actually, he was kneeling or standing initially upon the platform, the raised platform just to the right there that had the bronze altar upon which sacrifice after sacrifice were given. It's interesting, when, one of the things that I, I, I will share with you something from my heart. Uh, I am always very zealous for reformation and worship. I always want to try to get as close to the Bible and in simplicity as well as we possibly can. And to follow Christ's instructions as to how he is to be worshipped. One of the things that's always struck me is there's only three postures in the Bible for praying. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. The first posture is standing. The second posture is kneeling, and the third posture is flat on your face. But one of the postures for uh, praying that we never, ever, ever see is what? Sitting. Now, do you know why that is? It's, It's because in prayer, what are we doing? We are going before a sovereign, and we are making supplication in a way that's very similar to the way in the ancient Near East, they would go in in the presence of a king, you would uncover your head and you would come in and you would be very, uh, you'd be very careful. Now, the sovereign would be seated to show his power. 
And then you would come, you would advance, and depending upon the situation, you would either stand before him and make your supplication, or you would kneel before him and make it, or in certain cases, you would simply fall on your face before him. And so when we come into the presence of the Lord, I hope we, we aren't really a kneeling generation anymore, are we? But I hope in your own private prayers, you have knelt before the Lord and perhaps even fallen on your face before him at times and poured out your heart to the Lord and asked for his help. Our posture, I mean, it's not magical. It's not, I'm standing there before the Lord hears me. I sit and suddenly, ah, my mute button is pressed. That's, that's not the case. But the posture does indicate the posture of our heart. It's a reminder to us. In any event, Solomon starts out standing. And by verse 40, 54, we see he is kneeling with arms upraised before the Lord. Solomon, in this prayer, is addressing God. And at the same time, he is teaching the congregation. Good pulpit prayer, that is good prayer that occurs in the midst of worship, does both things. It goes in two directions. The leader of the assembly, in this case Kohelet, the preacher, as, uh, as Ecclesiastes 1 puts it, is first addressing God, and he's addressing the prayers of the congregation to him. But at the same time, he's, he's talking to the congregation, and he's talking to them about God and revelation and his work. And that is precisely what's going on here. This is a model, so to speak, for our own prayer and worship. It should be giving glory to God and at the same time teaching about God's work in his worship or counting his mighty acts in our own prayers. We should be thanking the Lord for the things that he has done, not just the things that he's done for us. We should remember them. And I mean, it's a good thing, is it not, to thank the Lord for the salvation that you've received at so high a cost? To thank Jesus for what he did for you and what he is doing for you in the midst of you, in the Holy Spirit's working in your heart? to thank him for redemption in your life ongoing, the way that he made you part of the family of God and drew you near, we should be thanking him for that, his work of redemption in our own lives. But we should also be thanking him for the work of redemption generally, for being willing to watch over his people always, to provide for their needs, to bring them out of Egypt, to give them a nation, even after they had been taken into exile because of apostasy, to be brought back, and then for that day to come where the Son of Man the Messiah, the promised one of Israel, Emmanuel, God with us, would be born. We should be thanking him for that and blessing him. The declaration of Solomon here is a double blessing. God is blessed, and at the same time, the people are blessed by what God has done. But Solomon pins everything in his prayer, as we see it going through, to the faithfulness of God in keeping his covenant promises. This day is occurring, he essentially says to God, because of what you said you would do. We remember that he actually he quotes uh, from, from prior promises that the Lord had made. 2 Samuel 7.12, we remember that the Lord had said to David, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish your kingdom. That was a promise that was made before Solomon was born. Amen. And yet he recounts it. That is being fulfilled. The Lord had said, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And now the Lord is doing that. And then you remember in 1 Kings 6.11, the Lord had come to him 
Even as he was beginning that work of building, the word of the Lord came to Solomon saying, Concerning this temple which you are building, if you walk in my statutes, execute my judgments, keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will perform my word with you which I spoke to your father David, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So Solomon built the temple and finished it. As long as Solomon obeyed the law and was faithful, God promised that if the people loved him and kept his commandments, and the two flow together, we seem to forget that. The Lord Jesus Christ, for instance, said to us, if you love me, send me flowers. (laughs) Yeah, he did not say that. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And not out of a slavish, (laughs) don't hurt me, obedience, the way that, that other countries worship their pagan gods, their false idols but rather out of a genuine love. I want to obey your commandments because I love you, and they are good, and they come from you. So God promised that if his people did not forsake him, he would dwell in their midst forever. Once the temple was built, therefore, as a place for him to dwell, God kept his promise. He was present in their midst in Jerusalem, and this was a culmination of all of God's covenant promises. Many years ago, there was an organization called Promise Keepers. Um, I went to one of their events in Washington, D.C. I remember a ton of box lunches and, and some great motivational speakers and uh, uh, some singing. Not as good as the Banner of Truth singing when all the ministers are gathered, but some great singing from many male voices and so on. But I remember I was always kind of un- unhappy about the name Promise Keepers. Because I, I remember turning to the guy next to me and saying, you know, brother... If we want to get down to it, we just prayed a prayer of confession. Uh, We're all promise breakers. There's only one promise keeper, and that's the Lord God. He keeps all of his promises. He has never made a covenant promise that he has not fulfilled. And it couldn't happen. None of the things that happened on that day when the temple was dedicated could have happened had the Lord not made it happen. He was the Lord God, and Solomon recounts it, who brought them out of Egypt. He was the Lord God who had given them the land. He was the Lord God who had given them a capital city and a ruling family. And David had wanted his, he he says, my father wanted to build this temple for you, but he wasn't able to do it because, of course, they didn't have peace. They needed peace all around with the nations. Now they have that. God gave them that gift. Moses had told them that the day would come when the Lord would choose a central place of worship. He does that in Deuteronomy chapter 12. And now that is being realized hundreds of years later after Moses made that promise. Finally, they have one king whose line is established forever. I have a beautiful temple in the midst of a capital city that is growing. The Lord, Solomon says, fulfilled his word which he spoke So Solomon thanks God, and he thanks him for all of his blessings. Paul House puts it so well here. He says, Solomon states that the events they are witnessing are part of God's ongoing love for Israel. The completion of the temple marks the end of striving for a homeland. It also stresses the Davidic covenant and the Lord's presence among the chosen people. I wonder, do you, you I find I don't do it enough. Do you stop, and when there's a, a blessing in your life, whether or not it's something in keeping with God's covenant promises, or just something that's a wonderful occurrence, do you pin it back to God and say, Lord, you have done this. 
You who have ordained every moment of my life, you were the one who did this. And therefore, I'm thankful. I, stupid story. I, I managed to save myself $1,200 by fixing my radio, following YouTube instructions from a, from a southern mama who had her... It, it's hilarious. There's her toddler in the, the, uh, the seat next to her while she's taking apart the radio of a Mustang. And then the toddler disappears and reappears dressed as a princess. It's, it's kind of hilarious. And then she's apologizing for all, you know, the, the toddler detritus that's in the console. You know, you can see you know, Cheerios and Cheez-Its and things like that. That's how you know it's a mom car. But <laughs> I saved $1,200. How did I do that? It was God's grace. It was his goodness to me. I thanked him. Do you thank him before you eat? Do, or do you just dig in? Do you thank him when something nice happens? Do you thank him for the day? Do you thank him when you wake up? Thank you for another day of life. We should. Solomon understood that all of the blessings that Israel had, that they weren't coincidences, that this wasn't just, what a stroke of luck. We have a capital city, a ruling family, all these uh, alliances now. Whoa, who'd have thunk it? Well, this is the promises of God coming to pass. There's no luck here. God has done these things. And he says, this is wonderful because you are the only God. You are the God of heaven and earth. All of the nations should bow before you. He says in verse 23, take a look. Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. And I would encourage you to look inside your worship folder. This is a word from a preacher by the name of Phil Riken. If I remember rightly, he's, he's still the president of Wheaton College. But he writes this, To say that the Lord is the God of Israel is not to say that he is merely a tribal deity, as if he were only one among many gods, on a par with the idols of other nations. On the contrary, Solomon praises God for his uniqueness, his incomparability. Uh, incomparability sorry. There is no one else like him. He is the only true deity. No other so-called God even belongs in the same category with God, the one and only. There is no other God like him on, on earth beneath. No one else we can trust to satisfy our souls or take care of our physical needs. There is no other God like him in heaven above, no other being who deserves our worship. In other words, there is no other God like him at all. He alone is the one true God. Brothers and sisters, this is a God above all gods because he is the only true God. The reality, therefore, of God and his covenant promises is what makes this temple so very important. And unfortunately, as we go through 1 Kings, I, wish, I mean, we, we're at the top of a mountain in one sense. We're at the top of Mount Moriah where the temple is being built. But also, unfortunately, in Israel's history, we're at the, at the peak of another temple. This is the highest point of their faithfulness and their worship. They'll have revivals. They'll have reformations and so on. They'll have some good kings after. But none like Solomon and David well, as the trust in God of God's people declines, as their faithlessness grows, one of the things that we're going to see is they begin to trust more in the edifice, the building itself, than God himself. They begin to trust in the ceremonies, the outward trappings, and whatever things appeal to him. They are going to see the presence of the temple of the Lord as being what's most important, not the presence of the Lord within the temple. And they're going to begin to trust in religiosity. 
instead of the heart of true religion, who is the Lord God himself. What, so what happened? Well, they, they stopped believing the promises of the Lord their God. They stopped loving their Lord. They stopped teaching the next generation about his doctrines. They put other gods, other things before him. And because they didn't love him, they didn't keep his law. Their theology declined. And they went through a process of theological declension, gradually becoming less and less stringent, less and less exact in their obedience to him and the way that they worshipped him and the things that they said about him. After a while, they had a religion without substance. And the ceremonies of the temple became simply the objective. We go to the temple, we go through the traditions, we do these things, that's enough. Without loving the Lord who's supposed to be at the heart of all of these things. And this began to take place under, under Solomon, unfortunately, as he later apostatized. His heart was led astray by all of his foreign wives. And then during the reign of Rehoboam, his son, we read this in 1 Kings 14.22. Now Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins, which they had committed more than all that their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places, sacred pillars and wooden images on every hill and under every green tree. What is that all about? That's, that's saying, well, I know the Lord God said that we're supposed to worship him as one people in the capital city and at the temple. But we're going to set up other places where we can worship him. And we're going to set up pillars which indicate the worship of false deities. We're going to mix our religion with the religion of the Canaanites. We're going to invite the Canaanite societies to have a word in how we worship. And we're going to adopt the things that they do. So we're going to build high places. They try to get into, literally, you see this constantly. It's either we have revealed religion or we're trying to climb into heaven ourselves. It's either God comes down and tells the truth to us or we seek by scrambling up the mountain to find heaven. And so we seek to go higher physically. That's why they built those huge ziggurats with the temple at the top. They thought they were literally climbing into heaven. Well, brothers and sisters, none of us can climb into heaven in our own power. That's one of the things that God wants to teach us. He has to come down and reveal himself to us. He has to lisp to our feeble understanding like a parent has to lisp, as Calvin put it, to their child who is not yet able to understand correctly. He has to come and speak to us. Not only did they build themselves these high places, we see, there were also perverted persons in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. What's that about? Well, that's about, they actually began to bring shrine prostitutes into the worship of the Lord. Not just female shrine prostitutes, male shrine prostitutes. That's the perverted persons. So you would worship God by having homosexual sex. That's literally what they were doing. The things that we see going on with, with drag preachers and all of the, the abominations, it's nothing new. Whenever God's people decline in that direction, this is the kind of thing that happens. We allow the culture soaked in the world and, and its fallen ways to come rushing in. But it should be a warning to us, hey, we're not on the right path when that kind of thing happens. It should be alarming to us as it should have been alarming to the people of God. All of these divergences from God's instruction were catastrophic. And not just because they were deviations from God's commands, that's bad enough. But also because they showed their contempt for him and more importantly, in creating this polyglot religion of let's bring the culture in and let's change this and let's not care about God and so on. 
but rather care about the observances and the ceremonies alone, what happened was you were no longer pointing towards Christ. There's nothing in the, the perverted persons and, and all of the ceremonies of the Canaanites that pointed people to the Messiah of Israel. And if they're not believing in the promised Redeemer, there is no salvation. The same is true today. If we allow the world to, to come rushing into the church, bringing with it all of the cultural concerns and desires and, and things like that, if we make our, our worship, and I've seen this happen, simply noise and sound and explosions of color and pyrotechnics, pastors on zip lines, clowns, artists, blah, 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 blah. We may amuse people, but we don't save people because it's only the gospel that saves it's only faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that saves. We can be made happy, but that won't matter if we're not made holy. And holiness only occurs when God's people meet with God on terms that make it possible for us to enter into his, pro his presence in redemption. And that only happens when we go via the blood of Christ. When we go clothed in his righteousness. So what can we learn from all of this? Well, first off, and I, I just want to go through this very quickly. The first thing is we see the importance of prayer that stresses God's redemptive work in worship. Holy mackerel, one of the things that I shouldn't say holy mackerel in a sermon, should I? There is no holy mackerel. But one of the things that, that hurts my heart is the way that Prayer has fallen away from worship. Why has prayer fallen away from worship, even in evangelical churches? They did a survey. This was several years ago, I think 2014. The average evangelical church spends less than five minutes in worship. Less than five minutes. A commercial break. Okay, back when you were kids and so on was about as long. Oh, brothers and sisters, if we're not praying to God as God's people, then we're not following in the line, are we, of God's people in the past and we're not doing the very thing that God told us? Why aren't we praying in church services? The number one reason that, uh, that people gave was it's boring. Why is it boring? Because we don't pray by ourselves. So it's weird. <sighs> All right, so he's going to say a bunch of stuff and uh, I hope nobody notices. I'm going to just attack scroll. Scroll, scroll, scroll. He's done. Thank you. Okay. Now we can get on with stuff. I hope he tells a joke this time. Oh. But prayer is something that is of incredible importance, not just to you, but to you and your family. I hope you pray with your family. And to you in corporate worship. When prayer is going on, it's not supposed to be the case that we zone out, but that we pray along. That our hearts are united together. And what are we practicing for? We're practicing for heaven when we will, as the people of God, praise God in his very presence together, when we'll sing the praises of the Lamb. If you don't like praising the Lamb, there's a problem with your Christianity at the very heart of it. We need to get more of prayer back into worship. We need to learn how to pray and to love prayer because we love who we're praying to. Did you ever notice that when you're talking to somebody you don't particularly like, every moment is awful? You just want to get out of it. Oh, please. Thank you, sir. That was a great lecture. I appreciated it very much. But when you're talking to somebody you love, the minutes slip by and you're like, is it that time? Do we have to go already? Can I stay here and talk to you more? <laughs> when 
will I get to talk to you? It's been 36 hours of talk. I think, I think we should stop before we die. But when you love somebody, talking to them makes your heart light. Doesn't it? If we love God, then who cares how long we... I mean, don't we want to stay in his presence and speak to him for as long as we possibly can? We need more prayer. The second thing, we too can add so much stuff to our worship. We can incorporate so much of the culture that eventually we lose our love for God and we begin to practice a polyglot religion that no longer saves anybody. One of the ways that this happened in the early part of the century, the 20th century, was um, modernism came in and liberalism came in and people no longer believed in the supernatural. They no longer believed that Christianity was about a God who redeemed a sinful people from the curse of the law, sending his only begotten son into the world to die an atoning death on the cross and to give them that new life and that new heart and those new desires. They no longer believed that. They began to frame Christianity as just a a philosophy. We follow after God and we follow his example and we try to be nice to each other. And then after two world wars where Christians tried to kill each other by every means possible, they lost confidence in this idea that we could build a moral kingdom here on earth. And then you've got French existentialism and really weird movies by Bergman and so on. <laughs> but brothers and sisters, what had happened? Reinhold Niebuhr, after the Second World War, summed up Christian liberalism this way. And he was actually somebody who was at the heart of it, unfortunately. But he, he said, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That's so true. J. Gresham Machen wrote a, a, a book which you really need to read. It's only this big. I recommend it so highly. It's called Christianity and Liberalism. Because he looked at liberal Christianity in the PCUSA, which was where he was a minister, and he said, this is not Christianity. This is moralism. It's moral and therapeutic deism. And it won't save anybody. He said this, the grace of God is rejected by modern liberalism and the result is slavery. The slavery of the law, the wretched bondage by which man undertakes the impossible task of establishing his own righteousness as a ground of acceptance with God. It may seem strange at first sight that liberalism, of which the very name means freedom, should in reality be wretched slavery. But the phenomenon is not really so strange. Emancipation from the blessed work of God always involves bondage to some worst taskmaster. Brothers and sisters, what what happened was they lost track of the mission of the church. They lost track of the power that the church has. What is the power of the church? The power of the church is God in her midst. And using the gospel that he has given, doing the work that he has appointed for the church. What's the work of the church? Well, it's to have softball leagues and uh, potlucks and... Um, to host Boy Scout troops and to... No, that's not the work of the church. It's not even to dance. It's not even to, to have get-togethers and so on. What is ultimately the work of the church? Well, it's rather simple, actually. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Because I want to make sure we're all on the same page in one sense. Matthew 28, what is the work of the church? Well, who should tell us what the work of the church is? I think God should tell us, shouldn't he? And in this case, by God's grace, 
Jesus has told us. You will turn to Matthew 28 and then verse 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me. Matthew 28, 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That is the mission of the church. That's the heart of what we're supposed to be doing. And it's only if we believe the gospel and we are meeting God on the terms that he's established through his son Jesus Christ that we'll be able to do this. Now we bring in other things and after a while suddenly the mission of the church is no longer the mission of the church. We're doing something else. We're going out and feeding people in foreign countries, which is laudable, but that's not the work of the church. But speaking, this will amaze you. I once had an argument on the internet and um, <laughs> I was speaking to a lady uh, who had become very, very upset because I was upset uh, that um, the U.S. Army had decided to put women in combat roles. And while I said this was not biblical, and not only that, every study that was ever done showed that the U.S. Army, the Marines, the Air Force, and the Navy were all less combat effective when they had mixed units. The Marines, in fact, did this, this long study in which they actually put all male mixed and all-female units against each other and everything, absolutely every task they were given, the all-male units did better. And so I pointed out that the army was becoming less combat effective and that people were going to get killed as a result. The wrong people were going to get killed as a result. And then she fired back, but you don't understand, there's so much more equity, there's so much more diversity, there's more opportunity for job training and promotion and for advancing the kind of skills that our young people need, and blah de blah de blah de blah And I finally said, do you know what the job of the military is? It's not a jobs project. It's not a social engineering project. Ultimately, the job of the military is to defend the nation by killing people and breaking things. And in order to do that as best as we can, and save as many lives as we can, we need to be better at killing people and breaking things than anybody else. And then when they know that, they say, let's not mess with them. Because we don't want our stuff broken and our people killed. But once we lose that and we begin to try to do everything else under the planet, laudable or not, we begin to lose our way. And that's what's happening. And not, I'm not talking about the military. I'm talking about the church. We are losing our way because we're trying to do more than we were supposed to. Brothers and sisters, make the main thing the plain thing. Meeting with God and telling others about him. It said that missions exist because worship doesn't. Do you realize that what we're supposed to be doing is bringing people into the worship of God, making it possible for them to know him by faith, and to, once they've been saved, to serve him with all of their heart and their mind and their soul. And I hope that's what your desire is. I hope you've done that. I hope you've closed with Christ, and you know him through faith. If you haven't, well, now's the day. It's time. It's time you closed with him. Let's go before him now. God, our Father, I thank you, Lord, that you are the one who has made it possible for us to know you by faith. You saved us at the highest possible cost, sending your Son into the world, establishing a church. Lord, just as you gave Israel a house for your name, you made Jesus the temple in which man and God meet truly. It is through him that we have reconciliation. Through him we have new life. Through him we become new creations. So therefore, I pray that if there's anybody here today who has not yet truly closed with you, that they would stop trying to establish their own righteousness by their own efforts. It can't be done. 
And they would stop hoping against hope that there's nothing beyond the grave. We know that's not true. We know we're immortal souls. We do go on. And we need to be prepared for that day when you call us to you. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us, oh Lord, to come to you. Work in the hearts of those who don't know you yet. Call them. Let them see their, their wretchedness without you. Let them have done with trying their own methods. And instead, help them to come to Christ, to know his love, his forgiveness, to know that in him they have everything that they need, everything for eternity. And I do pray these